Good morning, Gospel Fellowship. Ooh, sorry. Okay. Um, my name is Luther, for those that don't know me. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys this morning because I'm going to share a sermon on who is my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Um, I, wor- I work with uh, uh, Urban Youth Impact, and we do, also here we do um, inner city ministry, pastor, I mean, not inner city ministry, um, youth ministry here. Pastor Seth wanted me to tell you guys that. Um, but today's message is, who is my neighbor? And we'll be diving through a familiar uh, parable, a familiar passage. Um, you guys are probably familiar with the Good Samaritan story. Um, very popular. Through that story, we have, you know, hospitals, charities, nonprofits, um, and it's um, usually associated with um, doing good deeds towards other people. So uh, today we'll dive through that. I'll do an exposition on Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Um, I have three points for you this morning. I had one, but Pastor Rod likes three points, so um, I got three for you. Uh, but uh, I'm just going to hop right in. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll, we'll dive through it together. And I'll pray. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37 should be behind us. And it says, and a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Talking about Jesus. Teacher, and he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Or how does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus saying this, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him And he went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levi also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will reimburse you. I mean, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said to him, the one who showed mercy towards him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise, or go and do the same. Three points, testing God, good Samaritan, the second point, and go and do is the third point. Let me pray for us. Father God, I just thank you for this opportunity to share this word, and I just pray, God, uh, by your spirit, um, you would allow this church to be 
missional in how we engage others. God, would we see the love of Christ through this message? And I pray that it would move us to love our neighbors as our own selves. So God, we just give you praise and glory. Would you use me um, for your good purpose? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I have permission to share the story um, that my, uh, it's the story from my brother. Uh, I got his permission to share this. But I have, a de- I have a devastating situation that happened recently last year. Um, some of you guys may know my brother here. Me and my brother actually, uh, not- nothing devastating in the sense of like life-threatening, unless depending on how you view it. But um, my brother shared with me some news. Um, it all started, if you guys know him, when this church started, he was like a little kid, probably 11 years old. And um, he really took an interest towards Christianity because he saw that I, I had a huge interest in it. And um, at like when this church first started, he was reading a book that the church was going through at the time called Prodigal God. And after reading that book, he told me, Luther, I want to get saved. Um, and we kind of walked through this journey, this kind of discipleship journey. But I was young myself, so I didn't really know what I was doing. So in the little that I knew, I just taught him whatever I knew. And fast forward till today, he's, he's 18 now. He's an adult. Um, and on his 18th birthday this year um, in September, on his 18th birthday, I gave him a book. It was called, it's called The Good Life by Trip Lee. He's a rapper, if you guys are familiar with him. Uh, yeah, 116. So I gave him this book, um, and I said, hey, read it. I gave him to, to him as a birthday gift, and also I had to give him money because he's not going to be happy to get a book. Um, so I gave him a book, and I gave him money inside the book, hoping that he would read the book. And he told me that he's going to read the book. And I was like, okay, cool, perfect. So he read the book rather quickly, and after he read the book, um, he came to me and said, I need to talk to you. I need to have a conversation with you, and I was excited. I was like, okay, great, like, um, maybe he, you know, he wants to dive deep in his faith and stuff like that, because I I do sometimes got a little concern about him, because, you know, new stages of life in high school and stuff like that, and being a married man, I don't get to... um, be front to front with him as much now that I'm not home with my, my parents and stuff like that. And so he, he read this book. He wanted to meet with me. He said he really needed to meet with me. This was a time I just had a baby girl. Shout out to Samaria who's here and my lovely wife um, who put in the, the work to deliver that, uh, to deliver the baby. Um, so he comes and he comes at nighttime. He comes at night to my house. It was like first month with a crying baby in my hand, and I'm just looking like, okay, let's meet. You ready to talk? And he was quivering, and he, he said that I'm no longer a Christian. Um, I've denounced the faith. And he said that I believe that all of you guys are deceived and fools. And if anyone here knows my brother, if you know anything about him, he's brilliant. He's a reader. He's a thinker. Um, And so him saying that, I know if he was going to come to me, he probably came, he probably, you know, did his his homework, and he's probably coming to um, have a certain kind of conversation with me. And so anyway, after we had this conversation, he told, I was like, well, 
you know, why didn't you tell me this? How long have you been feeling this way? And he said, it's been over close to a year now that I've been kind of struggling with this. And I was like, if it's been like 10 months to a year, why, why didn't you tell me on the spot? We could have dived through some things together. And my brother told me that, um, well, he wanted to get his facts straight before he came to talk to me because he knew this was, and, and that was just kind of weird to me because I was like, man, like, is this like supposed to be a battle or some kind of competition to be won? Um, and so he actually had conversations with pastors. He's been studying Darwin. He's been studying uh, Dawkins and other leading atheists, and he was preparing just to have a conversation with me. And he was like, okay, now I have it. I'm ready uh, to go at Luther. And I'm like caught blindsided. I got a baby in my hand. I was not prepared for this. Um, but he wanted to test me. And I told him that, brother, like, this is your, your life. You know, like, this is not a situ- Like, basketball, we can be competitive and other stuff. But I love you. So, like, this kind of grieves me. And um, I was like, we'll talk for the next couple of weeks. But remember, this is not a battle to be won. Like, this is not a you know, Christianity versus atheism or whatever the case may be. But anyway, I, I bring that up because we've all at times uh, been in the seat of testing somebody, um, been in the seat of challenging someone. Uh, maybe you wanted to get someone's views on, uh, you know, certain things in politics, whether it's a Republican or Democrat or whatever the case may be. Maybe you wanted to um, talk about something real dicey and someone that you may respect or not, kind of see their take on it. And I know I've done that sometimes. Um, But in this situation, we have a lawyer who comes to test Jesus. And the way that he comes to test Jesus, it's not the same way that my brother tried to test me. Um, This lawyer was trying to test Jesus by way of trapping him. And when I say lawyer, I don't want you to think of civil law lawyers like what we have today in today's society, um, this is more so an expert in the law. This is like a Bible scholar, someone that knows the law of Moses pretty well, right? This is the guy you go to when you have questions, and whoever that guy is, whoever that guy would go to. So if I would go to Pastor Rod, whoever Pastor Rod would go to about questions, that guy's guy. This guy knows the word. He's an expert. And so he comes in a position of humility, as it seems. Today, when we have questions, we raise our hand. Um, teachers would sit in, in that Jewish context, and um, the, someone would stand if they have a question. And so this guy stands up and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's asking a question of salvation, right? It's, a good, it's, a, it's an important question. Rabbis in the first century would actually mull through this question of what it meant to have uh, what eternal life looked like and things of salvation. And so he asks Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Or how you'd say it is, you know, we would say, how, how would I get to heaven? Or what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, being brilliant as he is, sees what this man is trying to do. And a lot of times when we talk about the Good Samaritan story, sometimes we can look at it as an isolated kind of instance, but apart from this prior dialogue, you miss out some rich meaning in what this parable actually is doing. Um, See, what ends up happening in this conversation is this expert lawyer is trying to test God, and he's going to ask Jesus a question. He's going to start with a question, and then Jesus is going to ask him a question. Jesus is going to expose what's in this man's heart. 
And then after the man is going to answer, then Jesus is therefore now going to respond with an answer. And then after doing that, the man has another question, because we find out he's trying to justify himself, to that Jesus gives a parable, which then initially gasses his question, exposing what's in this man's heart. This guy is brilliant. And when I'm saying this guy, I'm talking about Jesus. Um, You can't outdo God. The teacher is the only one that initiates the test. So this guy right here is about to get schooled. You can't outdo the man who created the law, which is crazy. So we look at it. If we look at his first question, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's in the law? How do, you, how do you read it? You're the expert. How do you read it? And the man quotes, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting uh, what Jewish uh, rabbis and in that time in the synagogue known as the Shema. He's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 and Leviticus 19 verse 18, to love God and to love neighbor. They would recite this all the time and that early morning, and they would repeat this. He he quotes that, and Jesus says, um, after, after after he quotes it, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So this man's trap doesn't even work. Um, But if we look at the question, the question has some issues with it within itself. It says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, as far as I'm concerned, the only time you really get an inheritance, inheritance is a gift, right? And so if you have a family connection, right, if you're adopted or something like that, you can receive an inheritance. This guy's asking this question, what must I do? You can't work for what is a free gift. So the question already has some issues with it. But in their mind, in that, in that time, the, 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 the rabbis, the leaders, they were so tied to... Uh, just their, their Jewish tradition, they thought that by them being connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, like, surely, you know, I am the chosen people. And so, and also they, they were connected to their deeds as well, their bloodline as well as their deeds. And Jesus here says, do this and you will live, probably not expecting uh, such a response, Right? But salvation is always a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest anyone would boast. And so salvation is always a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's no kind of work that you can do. This, a lot of times we think that we can earn our way, whether by it's what we do here or, or by how well our CBR, our devotional goes, or how on point we are at doing the the fast or something like that, there's nothing that we can do to ever earn God's favor with with our mere works and efforts. This guy quotes the law, the lawyer does, loving God and loving neighbor, to summarize it, because he couldn't couldn't give the, the whole law, all 613. This is how they would summarize it, right? Essentially, the whole book, if you look, if you thought about the law, it comes down to how you treat God and how you relate to one another around you. And so in that, Jesus is going to expose the self-righteousness that is in this lawyer's heart. The self-righteousness and the self-justification that we tend to do at times. 
And I believe at that moment when he asked that question and Jesus said, uh, or he asked that question and Jesus actually affirmed and agreed with what he said and said, yeah, do that and you'll live. Um, and by all means, that's not Jesus saying that we're actually able to fully obtain the law. But the lawyer did not see that coming. And now that, that threw him off. And in his heart, he's now like, he's, he's thinking through. He knows he doesn't follow it. He knows that he truly doesn't really walk and live this out the way he, he um, appears to make it seem, even though he's an expert in the law. And so at that moment, seeking to justify himself, he says, well, then who is my neighbor? So now what's going on in the heart of the lawyer is, and, and what's really deceiving about him is he may have thought, okay, I've I studied the Torah, I, I know the law, I honor God. But neighbor, Leviticus 19, 18 talks about neighbor, and he can make a really sound argument for his neighbor being Jews and the people around him that he's probably hospitable to his friends, they come in, they eat, whatever. But as far as other people, maybe Samaritans or someone of a different tribe or tongue, I, I'm not fully sure. And it, what he's doing here is what we do at times. We justify ourselves. We try to lower God's perfect standard. That's, that's really what that is. And that's what he's doing at this moment. If he can just lawyer a lawyer, if he can lower God's standard, then therefore he can now hurdle over it, earning God's favor. And that's what he's trying to do. He says, who is my neighbor? But when he's asking who is my neighbor, what he's really asking is, who is not my neighbor? He wants to know so that he can earn his way by his own works. He's not walking into this idea that salvation is a free gift, which the gospel is clear on. This is why Jesus has come. So this guy here, in asking that, Jesus then goes into a, a story. Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He starts off with that. And then he, share, he goes in to share a story. And I have a, a, a kind of a picture of, uh, it's not the perfect picture of Jerusalem to Jericho, but um, if I could just, some, something of that nature, right? So Jesus starts this story off and says, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what he's doing here is uh, he's setting the stage of something they're probably pretty familiar with. This is a, a travel that they would, they would take at times. Um, and in doing that, we have three people that is kind of set way in the story. I mean, there's, there's five people in total, but um, he talks about this wounded man coming down. If you know anything about the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was a dangerous journey. It was very dangerous. Jerusalem to Jericho is a 17-mile uh, uh, wide length uh, of a go and a 3,000-foot drop. And in there would be caves, and people would be hiding in, robbers and bandits. It's an easy way to get pickpocket. And, and pretty much if you get caught on that journey alone, you're in some deep trouble. You know, there's no calling the cops to help you out. And when you think of robbers in that time, do not think of, like, just your everyday robber. Think more so as terrorists. If you get caught on that road, 
you can get jacked up, right? So we have this man, and the text tells us he's coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? And in, 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 in him coming down, he falls into the hands of robbers. And the robbers, they beat him, and they strip him of his clothing, and they, they take what he has, leaving the man, the text tells us, half dead on the side of the road. Half dead. And now we have three people that's going to pass by. The first being uh, the priest, which we would consider the godly man. If anything, this is the person we expect to help this man on the side of the road. This man knows the law. If he's coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's possible that he, he finished his priestly duties. Um, and now he's coming down this road. And the text tells us that he saw the man, but he went on the other side. So that means he literally went on the other side. He was aware of the man, and he didn't do anything. It's possible that in that exchange, as he's going, he could have looked at the man, remembered what the law said, and, and thought, okay, if I help this man out, and if he's dead then it's possible that I will be now unclean and I would have to go back to Jerusalem and now do another week of purification. It's an inconvenience. It's possible that's what could have happened, him coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. But what we have in the text, um, leaving out the historical context for a moment, what we have is that all we know is he saw, but he did nothing. The second man, who's the Levite, comes down that same road, and in, in coming down this road, he sees the man, and he goes the other way. Levites are temple assistants. It is possible, text doesn't tell us, but historic, historians could say that it is possible that this man was working in the same synagogue or temple that this uh, priest was working. And the priest passed by. Surely I don't know the law better than the priest. So it's convenient for me to go by. You know, I can go with a clear conscience. But regardless of what happened, all we know is he saw the man and decided to do nothing. He went on the other side. And the last person, which is the Samaritan. And if you know anything about the Samaritans, the Samaritans are hated by the Jews. The Jews despise Samaritans. The Samaritans are a mixture of Jews that were caught into um, exile with the, uh, they were, they were, were Jews that were caught into exile by the Syrians in 1721 B.C. And what ended up happening is over time, they would intermarry with pagans, people that had pagan culture, the Syrians. And this would make this half-breed Jew, which we know as Samaritans. You know, um, me being Haitian, my wife being uh, Dominican, our daughter's name is Samaria, we didn't get that idea from this text, but it, it's, a, it's, a half, it's a half breed, and that's what Samaritans were, and Jews hated them not only for that reason, for them um, intermarrying with um, those that were pagan, but also the Samaritans worshiped different. They didn't even worship the same way. They kind of took on what they learned from those that they married with, and then they had this weird kind of worship, and now they worshiped on a mountain, and they did observed the law of Moses, but that was about it, and the Jews were not having that. The Jews despised them. They would not even sit on the same table, let alone share a drink with a Samaritan, and the hatred was mutual. Samaritans didn't like them either. 
two. They don't like me, I don't like them. And now Jesus sharing that for the, the listener as they hear this, they probably would have been shocked at this moment. Okay, priest, I get, uh, priest walked by, that's odd. Levite, that's odd. And they, their, their mind would instantly probably go, okay, so maybe it was a lay Jew. A lay Jew was the hero of the story. And Jesus is intentional by using a Samaritan. He's working through that prejudice in their heart. He's working through what this lawyer and whoever else is listening, what they understood as the family of God, as a neighbor. This is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And so the Samaritan being the third person comes by, sees the man, and the scripture tells us he saw and had compassion. And this is like a drive for all ministry. Like when you think about ministry as we move towards ministry, any, any, any kind of ministry, what should move us towards people that are hurting or that are broken is compassion. Your theology doesn't work when someone needs help. The priest knew it all. The priest is the guy we expect to do the right thing. But his theology meant nothing when it was time to serve. Here we have a Samaritan with no great, probably theological uh, degree, no great background. He's not this, he's not H.B. Charles or Dr. Crawford Luritz or whoever you like to listen to, Dr. Tim Keller. He sees the man, and what ends up happening is he has compassion. His compassion moves him to do something. Compassion is not much of compassion if it's like, oh, that's sad, but pull yourself by your own bootstraps or get up, get up, son. That's not what we're talking about. This is what his compassion leads him to do. Text tells us, that he binds up his wounds. So if he was to bind up his wounds, I mean, people are not carrying bandages back then. He'd have to rip off his shirt and aid this man. He sees this half-dead man, which to, us, to mean half-dead would, would be to be unconscious. He, it's almost as you can't tell if he's alive. You can't tell. He looks dead. He looks dead. He binds up the man's wounds. Then it says that he takes this man and he puts it on his own donkey or on his own beast, animal. And in doing that, at this point now, he's walking. And this Samaritan puts himself at risk now because this is a dangerous road. Priests and the Levites would know that. If I stop, who's to say the robbers are still here? I could still, you know what I'm saying? That's frightening. Terrorists. All of us, we have security cameras now and all that. No, they can't risk that. The Samaritan puts himself in risk way. He has this half-dead man, unconscious man, bloody, the text tells us, naked on his donkey. Then now this, this Samaritan now therefore goes into what we know as Jericho or surrounding villages and to, to put this man into an inn. And so now he's going to use his own resources. He puts this man into an inn. This is, this is all that his compassion led him to do. He puts this man into an inn. And for him to come into these neighboring villages with a dead man on his animal, that is itself dangerous as well. I mean, the Jews, they hate him. If they see that, they don't know the context of the situation, you know. It's like coming to a, and this, this is a terrible example, but 
Um, it's the only one I could think of. But it's like coming to like, a, I don't know, at a certain time period, maybe before Jim Crow or something, some black dude carries a Ku Klux Klan member on, his, you know, on the back of his animal or something into a Ku Klux Klan village. Like, that's, that's wild. You're asking for it. Um, but mind you, it's just, that's just me trying to think of something. But um, this man comes through in there and brings the man to an inn. And in bringing this man to an inn, um, he, he pays two denarii, which would probably cover him for a week. And he stays the night, so he takes care of him. Mind you, just like everybody else, the Samaritan man was going somewhere too. He was, he was going down the journey, just like the priest wanted to probably get home to, hub, uh, to, to wife and, and baby or whatever, just like Levite probably wanted to chill and watch Netflix. He had something to do as well, and he stops, and he aids, and he stays the night, but it doesn't mean he doesn't have boundaries. He still has his own probably family to take care of and stuff like that. doesn't mean you're a doormat. He goes home and says, he goes wherever he goes. He has to go and says, I'll come back. I'll reimburse you for whatever you pay uh, to the innkeeper. Innkeeper, take care of him. Whatever you do, I'll, I'll, I'll reimburse. I'll take care of this man. And that saves, actually, that saves him from slavery as well. Because in that time, you can't really put anything on credit. So if this man does not return, if the Samaritan does not give him this promise, then eventually this guy would be sold, this wounded man would be sold into slavery work off the wages. So he's not even, not only does he save this wounded man's life, who's absolutely helpless on the side of the road, can't do anything for himself, he then also saves him from slavery if he doesn't return. And this has some familiar ties to the gospel, because what Jesus is doing here in sharing the story, he's, also, he's talking about himself. The Samaritan is who he's talking about but it's really referencing what he's done and what he's doing for us. Because though this man was half dead, in our sin we are fully dead, unable to justify ourselves. And what Jesus then does is he takes care of us, right? He, put, he, he brings us in and he, co- he pays the bill on the cross, that's what he did for us, covering it fully. And Jesus gives us the promise as well that he is returning back again for us, keeping us away from the slavery of sin. We have a promise and a hope. And and here we see gospel ties woven in to this Samaritan story. Jesus is talking about himself. This is what he does for us. His great love reaches out to those that cannot help themselves. And if you're here today and you think that you can do something outside of Jesus to help yourself, You need to check yourself. Apart from him, we have no life. We are helpless, unable. When the scripture, Ephesians 2, talk about we are dead, that means you are unconscious. You do not respond to the things of God. If it's not for the, the compassion and the mercy of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you have no life. It is his grace. This is what Jesus has done for us. And in Jesus He kind of feels this because as you think about the greater context of what this book of Luke is talking about, we see he is moving more towards the cross. It is setting way towards how he will die. And the people that will kill him is the Jews. 
And so that hatred, those are the same people that will do wrong to him and will wound him. And by all means, I'm not saying that Jesus is the wounded man. Don't hear me say that. We should be identifying with the wounded man. But for our sake, he was stripped naked, bloody, and wounded so that you and I could have life. This is the grace of Christ on our behalf. It points to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that liberates us. Lawyer hearing this, he could put the connections together. And he knows that Okay, this, this law is beyond me because the law is perfect. For you to be good by the law, you'd have to obey the whole law, and only God can fully obey the law. That's why it's his law, and he fully kept it. Only God can keep the Shema to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. For you, I mean, we've, we love God, and we love neighbor at times, but not the way that Jesus does it, right? Jesus has done it perfectly, without fault. And to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul means your whole being is captivated by God. Like you, you don't think any other thought outside of God. You're, you're moving towards doing what glorifies and honors the Lord. And to love your neighbor as yourself, I mean, we don't do that perfectly. If you look at, um, if, if let's say we're playing Catan and Dre wins, um, which I don't lose often, but if Dre wins... I should be just as excited. Like, if you loved your neighbor's self, yay, just as if I won. But no one really does that, right? Like, you don't watch the Super Bowl this, uh, today, and the other, team, the other team's usually probably crying after a defeat, they're, you know, or whatever the case may be. Or if they have good sportsmanship, if they're ever able to look outside of themselves, maybe they'll say, oh, man, we got to give it up to the opponent. They did well, or whatever the case may be. But no one's just like, yay, the Chiefs won. Like, the other team's not doing that, Right? Jesus loves like his own self. You know that you love, that you're able to die for your friend. That's what Jesus does for us. So this lawyer, in hearing that, it breaks his whole idea of who my neighbor is. And now, in understanding who our neighbor is, anyone that has the image of God within themselves is your neighbor. Anyone that has the image, the imago Dei in themselves is your neighbor. And especially to those that have needs, right? The widow, the poor, the orphan, the oppressed, these are your neighbors. The stranger, which probably in our day would more so, maybe the, the, the Bible says the alien, um, but would probably be an immigrant. Like, those are the people, we look out for all those people because Jesus identifies with them. Jesus identifies with the poor. Proverbs uh, chapter 27, verse, uh, I'm sorry, 28 verse 27 says, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will receive many curses. God cares about the poor. God cares about those in need. Brian Loritz says, your neighbor is the people who, and I'm paraphrasing him, who don't look like, talk like, act like us, vote like us. These are the people that are your neighbor. But 
Then Jesus then goes to say, as he's talking to the Samaritan, the Samaritan is thinking through, and if the Samaritan was, I'm not, I'm not Samaritan, I'm sorry, this, uh, this lawyer, um, if the lawyer was not selective in how he chose the scriptures, he'd probably look at Leviticus 19.34, not too far in that same chapter where it talks about you shall love the stranger or the sojourner like you love yourself. So he misses that. Um, Now what ends up happening is this lawyer is dealt with, has to deal with what Jesus just says. Jesus then asks a question after he throws the parable at him. He says, then which one of these proves to be a neighbor of the man? Which one of these three would prove to be a neighbor to this man that was wounded? And this lawyer says, can't even stomach it to say the Samaritan. He says, the man that has shown mercy to him. And Jesus says, go and do the same. And now calls him to do the very same thing that I've done, or the Samaritan has done. And notice how Jesus reverses the question. The man asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, essentially, that that's the wrong question. It's not so much who is my neighbor, but who am I being neighborly to? How are you proving to be a neighbor? That's what we, got, we ought to think about. How am I being neighborly towards others? And so, in being neighborly, we do what Christ did. We love, and that's what it means to be Christian, right? They will know you by your love. John 3, 13 through 34 tells you. They won't know you by how much theology you know. They, they won't know you by, by how, you know, how cool you are or how many followers you have on social media. They will know you by your love. John 3.13 tells us that. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. If you want to have a strong apologetic to the world, just love people like crazy. They'll be attracted to that. The first century church, you look at Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, they had a crazy love for each other. They shared all things in common. Anyone, no one there was lacking. Anyone that had a need, they would give it to one another. They were one. There was a unity of mind, and that love was so attractive. That's why the gospel was blowing up in Acts. And people were coming like the droves because they want to be a part of that. That love, that neighborly love, I want to be a part of that. That's what the gospel does. And so we have to go and do the same. It's final point, and I'm closing. We ought to love our neighbor. And that is the holistic gospel. That is the holistic gospel. It's not this, just this idea that I'm going to, if you just share the gospel with people, but never love on them or never warm-up bellies or whatever the case may be, if someone's in need or hungry, then you're just a religious Pharisee. But if you don't share the gospel at all with people, if to you it's always about just fighting uh, racism or social justice or feeding poor people in need, uh, warming up bellies, if you just don't share the gospel but meet tangible needs, you're just a social worker. It's not either or, it's both and. 
That is the holistic gospel, and that's what we see if you read the gospel of uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see Jesus doing both all the time. He's in there. He's, he's, he's casting out devils. He's feeding those that are hungry, feeding 5,000. He's like, we can't send these people alone with no food. They have a long journey. He's taking care of needs. He's, he's raising dead people and making them alive. He's healing the sick. The blind have sight. You see all the work that he's doing, and he's telling them as well about the kingdom of God. And so we can't separate the gospel and make it this two kind of thing, gospel in the air and gospel on the ground. Oh, I'm just in my own space and doing my own kind of Christianity or uh, this gospel on the ground idea where I just, you know, I just caring about people's needs is what it means to share Jesus. They will never hear the gospel. They have to know that they cannot obey the law apart from themselves. They have to see what this lawyer saw at that moment that I'm lacking in the law. And the truth is we're lacking in this law. And only by the power of the Spirit can we actually obey and do what Christ is calling us to do. We must go and do the same. We must be neighborly towards one another. We love because he first loved us. Jesus has set the model for us. So what would this, uh, Pastor has been doing this next step thing. Um, so... Um, what, what, what could this look like for you, and how, how should you be praying through this and wrestling through this? Uh, some next steps you could do is, so for some of you older women in here, you could walk into a, a Titus II relationship with, with a younger woman, maybe someone that's single or just newly married or just a new mom or whatever. Walk with them. You know, uh, be Christ to them. Invite them on the home. Share a meal. Maybe that looks like like what we learned last week with, uh, you know, Four Kids TV coming out here. Four, what is it, Four Kids TV? Four, four, four Kids. Uh, I watch so much cartoons. Um, maybe that looks like adopting, considering adopting or, or fostering. And I, and I believe, I, don't, I didn't have a dream. I'm not prophesying. I'm not saying any of that. I, I, I just have a hope that there will be a lot of new additions to the family in this church. Um, Maybe that looks like fellowshipping with your actual neighbor. So some of y'all don't know y'all neighbors, your actual residential neighbor. Like the only time you met them, you knew them was when you moved in. They brought, hey neighbor, and they probably saw the U-Haul truck and that was it. But, but get to know, engage your neighbor. You ought to, like Jesus asked the man, the lawyer, who are you, who, which one of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man? Prove yourself in being a neighbor, inviting someone Maybe that doesn't look like talk, act like you, in your home for a meal. So that would lead into potentially being hospitable. You could be hospitable to someone that has a need, right? And, and when I say be hospitable, yeah, invite people to eat and drink or whatever the case may be. But invite people over your home that can't do anything for you. So, like, love on those that you can't, they can't take you back to dinner, uh, to dinner as well. That's what it means to be hospitable, to love the stranger, right? Jesus says, what good is it to, to do those that would just do right by you? We're called to love our enemies. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love strangers, people that are different from us. Also, loving the homeless. Um, There's not me implying that you need to give out a dollar to everyone you see. There is wisdom in how, in how you um, go about that. But in your sphere of influence, you've seen the same home, homeless man at John Prince Park. Maybe you should consider, hey, let me hear your story. How'd you get there? I actually know someone from this church, without saying their name, got, uh, brought sandwiches to John Prince Park. 
hey, got to know this, this, this homeless person. And the homeless person felt so touched and loved and said, um, you know what? It's just good to feel like I'm an actual person, like that you, you, you see me. Sometimes that's, that's what they're looking for, some love. So John Prince Park is loaded. You won't run out. If you want something in Boynton, you could find some. But um, literally, they live there, like 25 of them. They, they have their own church. It's really good. Um, walking in discipleship and relationship. So maybe you're, you should consider walking in a discipleship relationship with someone around you, saying, hey, I, I want you to, let's walk in this season. Those are more individual kind of things, and that's what it means to be a neighbor. And I put three other things that are uh, organizational, but I don't want you to, uh, like, this is important too, but I want you more so to be a neighbor because it's easy to hide around causes um, and not be a neighbor. But this is also a good thing if you want to get behind this too. Uh, scholar uh, career coaching, uh, Lynn uh, at, uh, at Gospel Fellowship, she, she, she leads this. Maybe you want to mentor someone or, you know, urban youth and you moms, you moms, a way to help pregnant uh, mothers and walk through them in that season. So these are great ways to be intentional and missional. So let me pray for us um, in closing. Would you, would you all uh, consider how God is calling you to be a neighbor towards others?